every single one of us is leading, whether it's raising our children, whether it's operating in the organizations that we occupy, whether it's working in a team context, whether it's running our businesses, we're all leading. And we all have a responsibility to wholeness and to come from a place of being whole and to do the work that supports our mental, spiritual, emotional, physical, and financial well-being. And bringing our whole selves to the party in service to the kind of world we want to see and in service to the kind of people we want to be. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Carl Jung. For the majority of my 20s, my career really looked like a long ping pong rally. And I was the ball. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It was exhausting. I was stuck. And I felt it. And I tried and tried to, to get out of the rut, but I couldn't see what was keeping me stuck. It just felt like my fate. It wasn't. I'd grown up immersed in two very strong and seemingly opposed viewpoints on money, career, and success. My mom was very much a believer in doing things you loved. Follow your passion and curiosity. Let that lead. And to her, to let career or financial goals drive was a path to pain. That was a path that meant leaving behind the things you cared about and the people you cared about. My father, on the other hand, was always very entrepreneurial and driven by his own financial and career goals and successes. And to him, passion and love and even fun were things you got to when you had the time. By the time I reached my professional age, I had internalized both of these views as truth. And the conflict between them manifested in a manic career, one filled with many short-term projects and ongoing frustration. In one moment, I would honor my mom and pursue the path of passion for some time, only to lose steam because I felt weak and directionless. Then I would turn to honoring my dad, only to feel heartless and cold. It was a Goldilocks life, except I never found what was just right until I made the unconscious conscious. There have been a lot of times in my life where the truth about how the world works gets exposed for what it really is, a belief, a choice. Following your passions and curiosity isn't weak. Having financial and career goals isn't cold and heartless, and even worse, those were not my beliefs. They were my parents' truths that I was trying to live out. But what about my truth? And then one day, after a lot of work, it clicked for me. I didn't have to choose between those two. It wasn't my fate. In fact, I got to choose whatever I wanted because it was my choice to make. I get to choose how I engage with my career, my world, my life. And in seeing that the choice was mine, I saw a new way forward, a new path, a third path. That was my truth, my way. It incorporated the beliefs, both my parents, but it is and was uniquely me. And what led me to this moment, recording this, this work that I do, this conversation with all of you, it was seeing that that, that was my choice to make. But there are more choices about how I'm engaged with the world that I'm not making. And I have a lot more work to do. I have a lot more of my unconscious to make conscious. We all do. In fact, I think it's important to just name here the pain, the anger, the oppression 
that has rightfully surfaced over the last few weeks is a reminder to me of the more areas in my life where I am blind to the choices I am making. I have chosen not to see my privilege. I've blindly chosen to not use my privilege to break down the system. In these cases, I have chosen to not make the unconscious conscious. And that changes now. Rock Goddess is an entrepreneurial soul coach and author who helps people break free from their own unconscious traps and find their unique way in the world. We're sharing this conversation recorded months ago between Ra and Jerry today because it feels even more relevant than ever. The two of them discuss what it means to face and shed our unconscious beliefs that may be holding us back, both individually and collectively, and to really lean into what it means to be the truth of who we really are and what we can uniquely bring. It's a powerful message at the right time. Enjoy. What does it mean to build organizations of belonging? How can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, how can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content, one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io slash inclusivity. Ra, I have to confess, your face came on my video screen on my screen and my heart burst open. Oh. (laughs) So thank you for joining me on the uh, Reboot podcast today. Can you take a moment and just introduce yourself? That's kind of our tradition here. Absolutely. So my name is Ra Goddess and I'm known as an entrepreneurial soul coach. Mm-hmm. I am the, also the founder and CEO of a company called Move the Crowd, mm-hmm. and we are an entrepreneurial training company that helps people figure out how to stay true, get paid, and do good. Mm-hmm. Um, and most, most recently, the author of a brand new book. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Congratulations on that. Yeah. Thank you so much, called The Calling. Yeah. Um, and it's just a joy, Jerry. So let's dive in. I, I loved your book. I, I really want to say um, it was really a joy to read. It was, it was the delight. And, you know, you often find yourself scribbling fast and furious in the margins of the book or underlining, or in my case, lots of dog ears uh, on the pages. And so I'm going to just dive in. I know that this word true mm. means a lot to you. Yeah. And it's an essential theme in the book. Tell me what true means to you. Yeah. um, I think of true as being the soul of a thing. Mm -hmm. The soul of a thing. And, And, you know, my work as a soul coach, I often get asked, well, what does it mean to be a soul coach? I am someone who gets to the heart of the matter. 
Mm. Like it's what I believe my, my calling is. Mm. And it is to engage people in conversations of the soul. Mm. And it's the soul of themselves, the soul of the situation that they may be grappling with or the challenge that they may be having. And to me, anything that is really true holds a kind of integrity. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of unwavering power in touching what is true and specifically in helping us find what is true for us, what is at the core, what is at the heart of what's important, mm-hmm. what is at the heart of how we know ourselves, which is bigger than the titles and the roles and the accolades and the accomplishments that you know, like we have a soul, we have an essence and that essence carries wisdom and experience and insight and perspective. And now I'm going to go a little cosmic on you, <laughs> but you know, I, I, many, 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 lifetimes. Your <laughs> many, many, many lifetimes. lifetimes, all of us, many, like where we, we have access to knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And, and when we allow it, There is a different us that shows up, you know, when we uh, are willing to keep our own counsel and honor our own wisdom and follow our own inner guidance, there is a different us that Mm. comes to the party. And we are the ones that are going to lead whatever revolution we want to be having right now. (laughs) You know, however you want to define your revolution, you know, if it's a rave or it's a Mm. mass meditation or it's, you know what I mean? I do. However you define it. Um, And I think we're searching for it. We're seeking for it. That which is true. We're hungering for it. We're thirsting Mm. for it. And so for me, it's, it's, you know, it shows up in the integrity of alignment of our ability to see it, to touch it, to know it, and then to yeah. line up with it and yeah. work in concert with it. Yeah. I, I, I so appreciate uh, the depth and humor and love so evident in that response. Mm-hmm. And it calls to mind for me something that I've often shared, which I have often used the, the moment of things falling apart in my life to, to pay homage to my teacher, Anipema Chodron. That moment of things falling apart in my life where, where everything was needed a complete rebuild. And I remember coming to understand something about it. The first was that, um, that the deep and profound depression that I was working with really uh, was rooted in the lack of alignment that I lived with which I lived my life where it did not matter how beautiful the suit was that I was wearing because it was not my suit because it was not true. My heart hurt or to quote St. Augustine, my soul was a burden to me, you know, battered and bruised. My soul was weary of the man who carried it. I mean, that notion of, out of alignment, that notion of being out of true, the way a wheel gets true is really powerful. So what's the relationship between the calling Mm. and true? Mm. To to me, everything. (laughs) Uh Because I believe that we are consistently being called to come back to that which is true. Mm. 
that which is true for us mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, right? Mm-hmm. And, and sort of we can go on and on. You know, in my work and, and in the book, we talk about this, this notion of dharma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for some of us who understand what the term is, often the working definition is sacred duty or vocation or, you know, um, or the orderly path or your destiny. But there's that aspect of dharma that is about your true nature. Mm-hmm. And that is like, you know, Dr. Wayne Dyer, mm-hmm. uh, rest his soul, called it your I am essence. You know, it's, it's like, it's that part of you that like is unmovable. It is, it's just what you've carried in with you into this lifetime. And it's present no matter what you're doing or not doing. Mm. And this idea that we can return to that true part of ourselves and discover the qualities and the attributes that live in the truest and purest expression of ourselves begins to give us access to a place to line up, mm. right? A place to come back into divine integrity with mm-hmm. ourselves. And, and, you know, what you shared for me in, in, in the story of like just your own revelation is when we get to see sometimes how far out of integrity we are, right? you know, it can be scary or daunting. Um, but the work is always going to be to come home in little ways and in big ways. <laughs> yeah, um, we are always going to be invited to come home. And that is the call. That is the call. It's beautiful because what I'm seeing is that beyond even words like vocation and true calling, what you're really speaking to is the notion that the call and the calling is, is about coming home. It's, 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 um, you know, my Buddhist tradition, it's, I would argue in the eightfold path, um, through the four noble truths, it's, it's that notion of right livelihood, not being defined by what is the work that you do. Yeah. But, but right. You know, you do not have to live into the calling by, uh, becoming mother Teresa. Right. Right. That you can live into the calling really in whatever container you find yourself working through. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So in reading the book, one of the things that struck me was that you speak so well to to folks that I'm imagining to folks who are looking for clarity. Or at least what I found, what I took away was, oh, here, this is a clear path. I, I, I see you nodding. Tell me, tell me how that lands for you. Yeah. You know, we, we live in a culture of confusion. You know, because at any given moment of any given day, there are so many things pulling for our attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it takes a certain kind of discipline to not be driven to distraction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And I think in the busy and the hustle and the bustle of our realities, we often don't have the luxury to give ourselves time and space to just be mm. or to just think. 
mm. or to just listen. Mm. And because of that, we are functioning in confusion. And mm. some of us very highly functioning in confusion, right? Right. Um, we're not asking ourselves those bigger questions. You mm. know, a lot of times we're living in reaction to our environment or in reaction to our circumstances or in reaction to our mm. situations. You know, I say sometimes mm. at the mercy of, right? Mm. Whatever else may be operating. And so this commitment to clarity, I also describe it as a permission, you know, that you give yourself permission to get clear mm. and to be clear. And you give yourself a permission to actually prioritize your commitment to clarity. Yeah. What, what stands in the way of that? What, what causes the distraction? What contributes to the confusion? Is it a lack of permission? I think it is a lack of permission. I think it is also a belief that what we're seeking lives outside of us. Beautifully said. Right. And that uh, our job is to go hunting for it out there. Mm. Mm. And the challenge anytime we're prioritizing out there is you can get any number of messages Mm. and often they will contradict themselves, Mm. you know. I think someone just said, right, to be human is to live in contradiction, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and so you're, you know, you're reconciling all of this access to information that we now have, you know, and, and what we're missing on some level is that curation, yeah, right? That's really guided by what is internally operating. And so if we're not engaging in our internal operating system, if we're only sort of looking to the external to define and to guide and to inform and to dictate, Mm. um, then when we get those mixed messages, we're not sure how to process the discrepancies or the disparities or even the gaps in information. Mm. And all of those things can lead to confusion. Mm, mm. We also sometimes will stay in confusion because we're afraid of what the truth may mean Mm. or what the clarity may require. So in other words, once I get clear, I have a responsibility to then act on my clarity. Right. And what all may be encompassed in that. Right. And, and taking that action might terrify. Yes. Um, uh, because, and I think of the Adrian Rich poem. I often think of the Adrian I often think of Adrian Rich. <laughs> um, her poem, Perspective Immigrants, um, Take Note, in which she describes the doorway as a threshold. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it, it, and she says, it is possible. I love this line. It is possible to not go through the door and live worthily, mm-hmm. but the risk of not going through the door is the risk to not remember your name. That is true. Yeah. You know, um, let's get specific in terms of of the way in which I think many people. I've encountered myself, perhaps yourself, but I I imagine even your clients, the ways in which we get confused, the thing about which we get confused. Yeah. Money. 
Yeah. Money. Yeah. yeah. It's it's deep, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it is. And, and, and I'm going to bring your attention to stories, two stories you tell in your book in which you talk about recognizing your relationship to money. And you tell us the story of Z. Z's mom grew up in the Appalachian Mountains of Kentucky and was the first one in their family to go to college. And then you say, and I love this, as a coach from, you know, one coach to another, I asked you to imagine, to examine what being Appalachian meant. Because it's a loaded word, isn't it? Yeah. In our society. And yeah. Z made a collage of images of white trash, beer bellies, stereotypical rednecks, as they examined their internalized shame. Z had a fear of losing connection with their lineage if they became financially successful. Yeah. So finish the story. Tell us a little bit more about Z yeah. and, and the work. And shout out to Z Gris, who is mm. an incredible teacher and artist and transformation change agent who is truly on fire mm. in all that they are, they are building and moving in the world. What was so profound about going back into their lineage mm. was to unpack all of what's in there. And, and I will say, and, and again, I know this doesn't surprise you because I know you encounter this as well as so many of us have reasons why we feel that we don't deserve or are not entitled to uh, money mm. or, or entitled to a feeling of being well-resourced. Right mm. in whatever way that takes shape or form, and um, and also this this idea that it in some way wealth will separate us mm. from the people we love, or separate mm. us from the communities that we identify with, right? The ways that we know ourselves, and so mm. it's almost seen as kind of like a betrayal. You know, right. this, this is the whole selling out conversation, right. and. Prior to doing this work, Z was not even aware of all of what was in there. Z just knew that in one context, they felt very confident. But when it came to their work and it came to sharing what it was that they had to offer, they felt very afraid, very fearful, very concerned. And lack of belonging is another big reason why we stay in confusion. This concern about belonging, I, you know, uh, to quote uh, Rebel Angel, Angel Kyoto mm. Williams, mm, yes. one of my beloveds, you know, this idea of how we threaten people with belonging and that right. that's often a way that we kind of stay in the box, right, or get kept in the box. And, and for Z, being able to explore that lineage also opened up a series of conversations with their family mm. where they ultimately wound up sitting down with their grandmother and having this conversation about the family lineage and history and money and, and this idea that Z then sort of took on with the blessing of their grandmother, the aim and commitment of transforming the relationship with money in honor of the family legacy. I, 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 I was blown away by that part of this story because you, 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 you described Z made a family tree and looked at each person's relationship to money in the family. And then Z asked their elders and ancestors if they would hold a vision of wealth 
Z was incredibly surprised and moving, moved by receiving so much love. I love that image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 they would be the one to move to heal. Yeah. Well, to, to go back in time and to heal yeah. that relationship with, with money. You know, one of our teachers um, uh, at Reboot is uh, a gorgeous teacher named Michelle Masters. She's got a wonderful program called Money Magic. Mm-hmm. And she comes out of the lineage of teaching called NLP Marin. And, um, and the notion of family constellations. And I saw in a flash in that story, I saw the relationship between money and multiple generations and those ancestors. And then the heartbreaking desire to stay in belonging, even as it holds me in poverty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, And this question of how do we parse out belonging and dysfunction? Yeah. Right. Right. And like really heal the dysfunction. And for me, the the opportunity that Z, you know, and, and I'm with you in that. I, every time you know, I sort of go there, I get I get goosebumps. I really, yeah, me such too. A profound, yeah. such a profound moment for her, and for her family, right. and for their lineage, for them, right. for their family, and for their lineage, and this idea that they would accept and carry the opportunity to heal it and transform it and create a different legacy Mm -hmm. for the family, you know, Mm -hmm. and that it was seen as honorable. Like it was an honor to do this, you know, because they were met with so much love as opposed to what sometimes it can be, we know as a burden when you are the first to forge new ground in a family. it, 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 it reminds me, we, we were talking before the recording about uh, uh, my uh, friendship and work with Alex Blumberg at, at Gimlet, um, a startup podcast, and, and some of the conversations that we had on that podcast. But it also reminds me of a podcast, I can't, a conversation I had early, early on in the Reboot podcast in which I was working with an entrepreneur in a very sort of grounded, earth-like way about struggles that the, uh, the company was having with revenue. Mm-hmm. And um, I sort of backed into a very similar kind of question. And, um, and Derek was his name. And what Derek ended up sharing was the internalized belief system that too much money mm-hmm. um, would go against the family system. And so the way this is, you know, least any of the listeners um, see this as merely, you know, an internalized personal challenge. This has direct implications into how an organization relates to money, because how that person in that leadership position is relating to money means how they relate to money. You know, um, in my own book, in the first chapter, this is why. I dove right into the question of money in the first chapter, because for me personally, as I was growing up, what money didn't mean belonging, money meant safety. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because the family felt unsafe. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so the larger question, I mean, for those who are listening, we're not, we're, and when we share Z's story, we're not looking 
to them as an example of to, to map one-to-one, but as an expression of one way to work with the ancestral powers that are associated with that, with that very, very powerful totem called money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this opportunity to look at for each of us, and this I talk about in the book as well, what does money equal for us? What's the equation that we've set up ourselves around money and how do we start to unearth mm-hmm. and understand at the very essence and at the very core where those conversations come from yeah i mean to to harken back to your earlier question the one i love so much who are you to you as it relates to money yeah okay so i'm going to turn the tables a little bit raw who are you mm-hmm. to you as it relates to money, because you talk a little bit about your stories and your own journey, but I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit more about that. Cause, cause I, you know, I'll make the observation, your observations, your conclusions are not coming from some theoretical headspace. Mm-hmm. There's something lived in there for you. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, so historically, I come from, you know, I like to describe myself as this change of life baby mm. born into the intersection of civil rights and hip hop. Mm. You know, my parents, <laughs> right, right, right? That's perfect. <laughs> my parents were born in the 1920s, uh-huh. you know, had me in their 40s. Uh-huh. Um, and whereas the, the do good, the sense of purposefulness was very, very big in their reality because they came through that movement, the sense of being um, sophisticated around money or the sense of, of, uh, of being well-resourced around money was not something that I inherited. Mm. And uh, like many of us, I got set up in this conversation of the trade right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, you're either going to have money or you're going to have integrity. Right? And that it was, you know, slimly possible to ever have both in this society because of the nature of the way that this society organized itself right. around money. Right. And so for me, I had to really grapple with being again baked into my identity, this idea that if I ever saw money as important or, or treated money as a priority, that in some way, shape, or form, it meant that I was abandoning my values, that I was abandoning my people, right? Maybe and literally abandoning the civil rights movement, maybe everything that we have worked for. You everything. Everything that your parents born in their 20s, they're in their 40s and the 60s, they are living the most profound transformation that that may or may not have ever happened. I mean, we look at the world today and it's brokenness and yes. Right, right. We wonder how much ground, right? We wonder how much ground we've taken. I completely hear you, right? Right. But like this is, so this was all in there. Right. And I couldn't imagine myself. in any way, shape, or form, stepping outside of that frame. Right. right. And I remember the first money seminar I did. Um, and I remember this question of wealth came up, and I was almost like offended. Like, I was like, I can't even say me and wealth in the same 
sentence. Wow. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, yeah. and I had to wrestle with that. And I had to really get to the heart of like, why is this so viscerally uncomfortable for me? Yeah. And I had to yeah. realize that through my own growth and development and training and indoctrination that so much of what was baked into me was anti-capitalism, which then in those days equated to anti-money. Right, 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 right. And so I had to do a lot of unearthing to first of all, understand all of what was baked into that. And second, I had to actually separate out my commitment to being sustainable with my commitment to continuing to hold space for the upliftment of my people, which my people is everybody, right? And has evolved and grown, right? At the time though, I was looking at poor people. I was looking at people of color. I was looking at women, right? In terms of my work and the emphasis and the focus of my work. And I had to wrestle free Mm. interlocking of money with associating with, with being dedicated to, with having a value system that honored my people mm. and, and actually create a whole new definition. You know, mm. so when you ask the question, who am, who am I to me now yeah. versus who I was to me then, you know, who I was then was at odds you know, fists up or fists in the air, however you want to look at it, right? Right, right. Very much at odds. Money was the enemy. And who I am now and and what I recognize about myself now in relationship to money is that money for me is a vehicle. It's a tool. Mm. It's a conduit. But Mm. it carries the energy of whatever it is that I choose to give it. So if Mm. I choose to give it love, that's the energy and the current that it carries. If I choose Mm. to give it resourcefulness or good stewardship, that's what it carries. So it is whatever I say it is, Mm. you know, in the way that I choose to operate Mm. it. And I talk about Mm. this in the book, this idea of forging our own personal economies and finding our money truths. And, And that every single one of us gets the opportunity to drill down into who is all in my head when it comes to defining what money is for me. Mm. And at what point do I determine what conversations serve me around money and what conversations don't. And Mm. what I realized in that room when I had that breakdown was that I would never fulfill on my vision for the change I wanted to be in the world if I continue to allow myself to be underutilized and under-resourced. And I had to, right, exactly, and underpaid. Mm -hmm. I had to realize, like, I can do more Mm -hmm. if I have more. Mm -hmm. I can express more. I can create more. I can be more in the context of my vision for the change I wanted to be Mm -hmm. if I had more. And that I could trust myself, which was the big thing for me. Right, right. I could trust myself with more. Because so much of the concern in my indoctrination was that money would corrupt me. You could trust your ability to go back home and be true. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. That I would, my values 
would mm-hmm. remain intact mm-hmm. if I was mm-hmm. able to figure out and find a way to work through my barriers with money that actually mm-hmm. I could have more and do more good with it mm-hmm. than having more automatically equating to me abandoning my values, abandoning my people, abandoning my good sense, or, you know, fill in the blank. But this piece of being able to trust myself with more Mm. was what really brought me to my knees because I didn't realize that part of what I had inherited was a a fundamental mistrust of myself, that I wouldn't do the good thing. I wouldn't make the good choices. I wouldn't um, honor the things that I felt like were important if I Mm. had more. Mm. And my ability to heal that and reconcile it was the beginning of a whole new relationship and a whole new reality for me around mm. money. Uh, I, I am so delighted and empathetically connected to that story that you just shared and all of that insight that you just shared and really admiring of your wisdom. Mm. You clearly have done your work And um, if I can just share, uh, listening to you gave me an insight into my own journey. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I've often written about and I've often spoken about money as a mechanism for safety. My book, I call them, I liken it to my grandfather always having enough lemon drops. Mm -hmm. Because my grandfather always seemed to have enough money, my pursuit of money became a pursuit of lemon drops. And um, sitting here, I started to think, I heard in your process, to use a very coach-like word, reframing, right? I heard you reframing your relationship with money. And so while staying connected to you, I began to also simultaneously examine the way that I reframed it. And in a similar fashion, once in my late 30s, early 40s, when I began to understand that I have enough, Mm Then I began to reframe it as a kind of work in the world to help others. And it became uncomfortable. I'm going to confess this, Rob, because what I, it was only a few years later that I began to see that I was actually coming from a place of profound privilege when I was when I would reframe it away from money create safety for me to me being money is going to help me help others Hmm. in that kind of superior posture. And, you know, the way privilege can often mess with your head, Hmm. it it, it made me think, huh, oh, look at what a good person I am Hmm. by being able to do this. And, and, And listening to you has helped me realize something really, I think, uh, important, which is that I have actually shifted even from that. I am still um, called to give because that's part of what is true for me yeah. is to answer that call. But I no longer use it to assuage the fear I have internally that I am not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so the real uh, uh, for for me that 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 journey is I am enough and I can give. I am not enough because I give. Right. 
I think we're we're both modeling something super important here, if I can call it out. And it's something we we talked about just before we started recording, but something that I am deeply, profoundly um, focused on, hmm. which is that those of us who hold power have a responsibility to examine. I'm going to curse now. Examine our shit. Yeah. Mm. I see you doing that. And, and, you know, in this moment, with this platform, with the work that you have created, you have created power. You have power. Yeah. I have power. Um, I have power that is positional. I have power that status. I have power that stems from, you know, just the meat bag of me. And I, you know, there's always work to be done. Yeah. I'm going to warrant that you'll agree that neither oh, of us is done. <laughs> and those oh, of us who know us well will tell us repeatedly that we're not oh, done. <laughs> right. But, but I think, I think there is an opportunity in this conversation to draw out the, the, this fact. And I imagine you agree with me that those who have power have this moral and ethical responsibility. Yeah. To get their shit together. To do the work. To do the work. Right. If, if you, and, and this is, you know, I mean, you all, so many layers. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just say that out loud. So many layers, so, many, so much unspoken in the spoken. Um, yes. But I believe it's all of our responsibility because we're leading no matter where we're standing. And I yeah. think that's the other piece of this. You know, if you were to ask me, what my ultimate hope is for people who read the book is that they utilize it as a blueprint for how to get free. And when I say free, it means reclaiming all of the aspects of who you are that are powerful, that are incredible, that are brilliant, that are capable. And, you know, in this context of money, the the, the whole get paid section Mm-hmm. is really about supporting all of us and being able to heal what I call scarcity, this, mm-hmm. this indoctrination around scarcity. And I name this because the heart of what we are seeing modeled in some of our leadership on a very grand scale mm-hmm. is the indoctrination to these distorted notions of power. And mm. what it is that we believe power is mm. versus what power really, where power genuinely stems from, right? So these sort of old indoctrinated ways of greed and dominance and exploitation, right? And all of the ways that that has played out through time. Mm. And every single one of us is leading, whether it's raising our children, whether it's operating in the organizations that we occupy, whether it's working in a team context, whether it's running our businesses, we're all leading. And we all have a responsibility to wholeness Mm. and to come from a place of being whole and to do the work that supports our mental, spiritual, emotional physical and financial well-being and bringing our whole selves to the party in service to the kind of world we want to see and in service to the kind of people we want to be. Mm. But that is the contract we've made with us and us, right? And so 
Leadership has not had that prerequisite before. We have seen success, and, and I do make a distinction, Jerry, between people who have a bunch of stuff, people who are good at stuff, versus people who, in my mind, are truly, genuinely successful. Mm. There is a distinction. Mm. However, we've been indoctrinated to believe that people who have a bunch of stuff or people who are super good at stuff, that automatically there are things we hang on them, things mm. we drape on them in the context of power, in the context of iconic worship, right? That um, then give them license, dare I say, to act out in ways that normally would be completely unacceptable. And we have to own that because they're operating in that context on our watch. And we're not saying the emperor has no clothes. We're not saying this is insanity. We're not saying, you know, and we keep waiting. We're not demanding that they do their work. No, we keep waiting for the person next to us to say it. We keep waiting for the person behind us to say it. We keep hoping and praying that things will unravel to a point where it will be apparent to everybody, you know? And, um, and you know, there's, the, there's that old uh, story about, you know, how they come knocking on everybody else's door, mm. you know, until they come to your door. And mm. so as leaders, we have a responsibility to do our work. And as those who are committed to entrusting other leaders with our systems and our structures, we have a responsibility to also command that this is part of the prerequisite for leadership. Uh, I am so thrilled to hear you describe it that way. It, you know, once again, you're helping me really see Yet another expression, you know, um, one of my infamous questions that I ask people is, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? And what you're really calling forth is the way we are, we have been collectively complicit, not entirely responsible. And I often make this distinction. The accomplice drives the getaway car, doesn't stick up the bank, right? But we have been accomplices in the misuse of power in precisely the ways you've described. We have been accomplices because we do not demand more. And, and you know, it feels like we are in dark times. Um, and it also feels like to me that maybe the, 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 the opportunity that is in these dark times is to reach deep within ourselves and say enough. Yeah. We demand more. Yeah. We will not be, we will not stand by and allow the people who run our organizations to do violence to the planet, violence to the community, violence to themselves. We will not stand by and watch politicians divide us, hurt us, hurt those who are on the margins of our society and we will stand up. Yeah. Yeah. It is time. It is time. And, and it's bigger, you know, it's bigger than party affiliation. It's bigger than, you know what I mean? Like I think sometimes it's not red and blue. No, we get stuck in this old entrenched positioning that I do not believe serves. Right. 
And so when we look at this responsibility, you know, I, I pose this question, you know, in, in the third section of the book, when we talk about the do good section, I said, you know, are you going to be part of the problem? Are you mm-hmm. going to be part of the solution? Right. Mm-hmm. And I really look at it. Are you going to stand in fear or are you going to stand in love? Yeah. And what we know intuitively, even if we may not know it logically, is that love gives us far more capacity to contribute than fear ever could. Mm. Right? Fear may be the spark that gets us on the journey, <laughs> but at some point, love's got to take the wheel. Yeah. Right? If we're really in it for the long haul. And I think we have to own, Jerry, that it's going to require courage. We have to own that it's going to require a willingness to maybe not be popular. It's going to require uh, a stand, but we have the capacity to do that. And we also want to recognize that we're not standing alone. Yes. There are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of other people who are standing with us, right? Well, to to your point, there's two things that, that come to mind. The first is people will often ask me, what is it that you want people to know more than anything else? And I will say some version of, I want my epitaph. I want my gravestone, if I had a gravestone, to, to just have a phrase on it. You are not alone. Mm-hmm. Right? But the second thing that occurred to me is, you know, again, when, when you, your beautiful face popped into my video screen, and we just started, like, we had this thing that just started bouncing back and forth with between okay. us immediately. Um, I, I was puzzled by it, but open. And now when you just said that, I realized, oh, we actually have each other. We're, we're kindred souls on that work. And how I manifest my work is a little bit different than how you manifest your work. But guess what? It's the same work. Right. Yeah. And so in that way, neither you nor I are alone right now. And let's pay homage to our ancestors because they're still here with us. And, and let's let's acknowledge the generations who will come after us for whom we will be the ancestors. Yeah. And they're all around us. Yep. And they're saying, what will you do? What are you going to do in this moment? What is ours to do? And I think that that, you know, I loved your statement earlier where you said, you know, it doesn't have to look like Mother Teresa. And I talk about this in the book. Like there is a difference between good work and your work. Yeah. And I invite you to find your work mm-hmm. in whatever way it wants to express itself. You know, it might be making video games. It might be, you know what I mean, right? Right. right it might right. be through dance. It might be through speaking or writing. You know, it might be through creating an incredible product, right, that revolutionizes the way we clean or the way that we travel, whatever the case may be. We want to invite your contribution in whatever way it wants to take shape and form through you. Mm-hmm. And you have the opportunity to be true to that, knowing that what is most important is your work in this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I hear often when I see my ancestors, my elders, when I think about the people that I link arms with, you included, <laughs> mm-hmm. in this work, I, what is mine to bring? 
right? Like if we're going to the greatest potluck that ever was. Yeah, I love that image. <laughs> is mine to bring, oh, mine is to bring that upside down pineapple cake that has uh, been in my generation. Do you know what I mean? That's been in my generation, my family for four generations. It was my grandmother's mother's 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 recipe. You know what I mean? And I added my own little twist, you know, with a little extra bit of spice rum or whatever, you know, like I know that's a party favorite. I'm bringing that, you know what I mean? And there's this opportunity for every single one of us to see the marketplace in that way, to see the world in that way, to see our family systems in that way, to see our community and our society in that way, and to actually honor the joy and the honor and the privilege and the need it is to share what we've been given to bring. Amen. I just needed to pause and let that land and let that come into my body. Ra, it's been an absolute delight getting to know you in this way. And uh, I know that we're going to link arms. I know. Because, you know, we said it before, we've got good trouble to make in the world. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we, the world needs a little tilting. Absolutely. And we're going to tilt at it. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, the book is called The Calling, Three Fundamental Shifts to Stay True, Get Paid, and Do Good. Um, it's available everywhere. Um, I love it. And I adore you. Oh, Jerry, the feeling is mutual. Thank you so much for having me. And you all, thank you so much for listening. Now's your time. And Amen. we're here for you. We're here for you. You got it. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Jerry Colonna. Thanks for listening to the Reboot Podcast. Check out my book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. I hope it really moves you.